I, I think I'm with you there, AJ. I think it's one of the few areas where I'm in almost perfect agreement with anti-nuclear people. So Yucca Mountain is this barren mountain out in Nevada that was going to host all of the spent nuclear fuel from America's nuclear plants. That's mostly what people mean when they say nuclear waste. They mean the depictions of glowing green rods, for example, from The Simpsons. They mean the spent nuclear fuel, by far the most radioactive part of the of the nuclear waste cycle, you could say. And they are opposed to using their own state as a so-called dumping ground for nuclear waste. For me, my objection to Yucca Mountain is not that it would be unsafe, it, that it would be a lie. It wouldn't save a single life, but it would imply that you have to put waste under the ground to keep it safe, which is, to me, basic scientific and engineering fraud. It's not required. And if you can't protect a few spent fuel casts at a local nuclear plant, then you may not have any business running any type of power plant of any kind and maybe just go ahead and shut down the grid and also all chemicals and also all stores. Like, if you can't protect a few essentially immobile, ultra-heavy, no-moving-part tasks, uh, concrete and steel containers that very safely, very securely guard this waste, then you don't really have a society at all. And the claim that you have to make a one million year uh, tomb for nuclear waste is just more of this exercising flight of fancy and fantasies of a post-apocalyptic wasteland it has nothing to do with our world. It has to do with visions of a of a Mad Max society from getting nuclear bombed. It's again, the nuclear waste fear is a confusion with images and fantasies and nightmares of nuclear war, which is why I think it's very hard to find young people who, upon being shown a nice nuclear waste museum like the one I visited in the Netherlands, where they just have really cool architecture and really good tours and nice art on the wall, and you can feel the floor being warm from the decay heat from the fission products that they have stored there for, you know, it'll be fine for a couple hundred years or so, and then they can decide in 500 years if they want to do something even deeper. Well, I think that the reason why the younger generation is less worried about it is because the worry about it in the first place was essentially misdirection on one hand and a willing culture that was already terrified by a nuclear world they felt they had no agency in, only downside. So with the passing of that generation that was traumatized by escalating nuclear war fears, you also have people who just can't get all that stirred up about nuclear waste because it hasn't hurt anyone. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I Well, I, look, I recall getting under my desk in Salt Lake City when I was in elementary school because we were rehearsing for a nuclear attack from Russia. Um, we we would watch the the tests, <laughs> you know, going off in Nevada, and you know, speculate about whether it was bigger than the last one. And my dad would say, "Yes, son, I think it was," and that sort of thing. And I I asked the, my fifth grade teacher why I had to get under my desk. What difference that would make if there were an atom bomb. And he said, shut up and get under your desk. <laughs> you know, what's <laughs> horrifying to me is that, um, I, so that is a very powerful image. And I've heard that from a number of people. And it, on one hand, it indicated you were probably always more 
uh, let's say rational or, or maybe more had an engineering or scientific mind about the relative risk. If you're going to die, you're going to die. But also think about this. There's a, you, I heard people argue, and I think I agree. There's a sort of conservation of fear in society. There's only so many things you can be worried about, you know, like the fretting mother who's going to find something to worry about. If there's no, no extra thing to worry about, they'll find something. Well, students are still doing duck and cover drills under their desk. It's just about school shooters. And so on one hand, I say we're much more relaxed about nuclear because we're much less afraid about nuclear war. Well, partly because we've replaced that fear, that existential dread with other dreads with other fears, which maybe brings us back around finally to climate change itself. The fact that I've heard people argue, we're going to die in a very small number of years from climate change. So why would we do nuclear? Whereas I hear that and I think, okay, that's kind of backwards. The more worried you are about climate change on one hand, the more you should want every tool in the tool chest to, to protect you from carbon emissions. And on the other hand, you would want an absolutely durable, ultra-long-lived uh, source of energy that will protect you come anything. And then I realize, ah, the ability to think about climate change as a, as a rapid extinction event or something that's definitely going to kill you or kill your kids or, you know, that level of intensity of dread, regardless of what changes are coming down the pipe from unabated CO2 emissions, I think is a leftover fear pattern from the Cold War, from nuclear bombs that makes a mold that is easily filled with climate panic itself and making no statement about the about the science on the what's happening, just saying the ability to panic about a slowly rolling and emerging problem like climate change, I think is something itself is left over from the Cold War. In fact, I'm finding young people who can't quite panic. They can either get depressed or they can shrug it off, but they're struggling to panic the way I've seen people in an older generation do. And I think it's because of that pattern of fear. So you might have an answer there. People panicked about climate change, maybe getting that panic from the same thing that causes them to dismiss or reject or be afraid of nuclear energy. And young people who fundamentally have a long period of time, they're going to have to live with climate change and they're going to have to do what they can about it, are being more open to nuclear because it feels like agency. It feels not unpowerful. I mean, they acknowledge that nuclear is very powerful, but it for once it's power to do good. It's power over forces arrayed against them. And for once, you've got an energy source that is truly up to the scale of the challenge. And I, I'd like to interject that Madison Hilly, maybe everybody here has read her editorial that was published in print anyway on May 1st in the New York Times. We're thinking about nuclear waste all wrong was the title. And that's the demographic that Mark is talking about is she's the founder of the campaign for a green nuclear deal. So that and an expectant mother. OK, that's that is an investment in the future. Well, yes, we, in more ways than one, educating people about nuclear waste and and uh, bringing bringing new life into the world, I think, is a beautiful combination. Real hope when you combine those two things. But AJ, I didn't mean to step on your toes. I just want to in, insert that while we were on that topic. No, and you're still that, on the topic. Yeah, ab absolutely. And there there is, you know, another aspect that people ought to keep in mind. And that is if California is legislating 
that we're going to have 100% electric cars by this and that date, then it's very, very important. Talk to Cal ISO. Talk to the, you know, the people who are responsible. That's the California Independent System Operator, the operator yeah. of the electricity market and grid dispatch system in California. Exactly. Talk to them. You're going to have, we look, we had a heat wave. We had flex alerts last summer. That's without millions of cars being charged. And now if you have a flex alert and you have an electric vehicle, in addition to not turning on the air conditioning, you aren't going to get to work the next day. And that's going to be on you. Maybe your boss is sympathetic to that. Maybe they aren't. But it's going to cause problems if we start charging all these vehicles. And it really is an illusion that you can put a few solar panels on your roof and that's going to be enough to charge your Tesla and your wife's Tesla or whatever. It's not even close. You need to have a lot of panels and and it costs a lot of money. So there's a question as to who's going to pay 80,000 bucks for a car and then 35,000 more for panels and on and on and on. And a battery cost. Yeah. And How so, many thousand there? Yeah. The question is, who's going to be left in the state, uh, right? Because people have options. And it's not a, it seems to me that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing here. Uh, you do have to guarantee the electricity supply. It's very vital. You have hospitals, they have equipment. You've got frozen food, it all spoils. You can't do any credit card transactions. We can't conduct this interview. I can't teach any of my classes. Electricity is critical. It's not an optional thing. It's like oxygen. You have to have it at all times or you're in big trouble. And if you don't have it, you won't think about anything else. It's just like oxygen in that way. But there's nothing wrong with trying to electrify the vehicles and get rid of the emissions, but you do have to be able to guarantee that you're going to have enough power to do it. And you can't just pretend that uh, it won't matter because the amount of power that you need to charge those vehicles is absolutely stupendous. It's really big. And uh, people are going to have to go to work every day. Just look at the traffic around here in Southern California. There are a lot of people who have a lot of things they have to get done, and they will need to charge up those vehicles and keep them going, or there will be either lost jobs or people leaving or, you know, all kinds of things happening that that are probably not great. So... Recently, Mark's posted about what Dow Chemical is doing, rolling out in their distributed energy model. So neither of you have, you've sort of given a glancing reference to the distributed localized models, AJ talking about what's on UCI's campus, but it's not generating power for customers. But Dow Chemical is signing on to this distributed energy model that they're capturing the steam from the generation and the actual electricity. So if you two want to talk to the, that could be a perhaps a shorter term approval and online. I mean, Dow is going, it is going to be online. 
Right. So the time frame for that, and maybe it's going to be the distributed energy model that's going to kick the nuclear power generation into a broader kind of uh, sector. Right. So Dow Chemical, one of the biggest chemical companies in the world, has announced a project along with a new reactor company. Now, it's an old type of reactor, a high temperature gas-cooled reactor. So instead of water coming through the nuclear core, there's gases that can be heated to much higher temperatures because of uh, the, you know, just uh, different properties of gases as opposed to steam. So what's interesting about the situation is that it brings up a very big energy need that is very easy for even experts to forget about. That is industrial heat. When you're doing chemical reactions, that require very high energy collisions between particles. And what, what do you use to make those collisions happen? Heat energy. That's particles hitting each other harder, moving faster. Higher average speeds and energies of collisions are those are going to be uh, uh, those are going to be the ones happening at higher temperatures. So what Dow knows they need is these really high temperatures. And if you have to take electricity, make electricity transport electricity, use the electricity to produce, say, gases, or even just use uh, very hot elements, heating elements, then you're losing an enormous amount of energy along those transformations. Instead, they're going straight to the source, hot heat, hot gases coming out of a nuclear core, making very high temperature steam, and then the high temperature steam going directly into high temperature reactions that are not making electricity first in order to do so, that's sort of a holy grail of decarbonizing heavy industry. And they're going to be able to do it with a plant that runs right on site on their schedule. If the plant operates well, there's going to be some teething issues, almost certainly in getting a, any high temperature novel reactor design working as consistently as the reactors that we have a lot more experience with. So there, there will be some uh, effort involved. But when it happens, heavy industry will likely flock to the places that can get this system going correctly. And if countries like Germany aren't back to nuclear by the time Dow gets this up and running, people are going to see the writing on the wall and they're going to want to move their heavy industries that require high temperatures for energetic processes to the countries that already have reactors for this purpose. Thank you. That's really helpful. And what I'll do is defer to uh, other economists that Mark is interacting with that talk about industrial policy and macroeconomic synergy. That's a whole different area, but it certainly overlaps with this whole discussion and policy level coverage here. So, all right. Well, good to meet you. Yeah. Listen, Claudia, thanks so much for inviting us both and, you know, maintaining the interest. And I think it is important for people to hear these things and wonder about it. We we got to powerful issues, life, death, the weight of history, trauma and childhood. This is a heavy episode. This is a very good one. Thank you. This was great. Take care. We'll be Hang in touch, on me. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.